every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for Monday the 16th of October. Is it starting to feel like Christmas yet? This podcast is where you can find discussion and analysis on some of Asia's top business and finance stories. And thanks to your support, we're one of the most downloaded financial podcasts in Hong Kong. We're sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China is considering forming a state-backed stabilization fund to shore up confidence in its 9.5 trillion US dollar stock market, according to media reports. Financial regulators, including the China Securities Regulatory Commission, recently submitted a preliminary plan to the State Council, which is China's cabinet, and it calls for the fund to have access to total capital in the sum of hundreds of billions of yuan. China's consumer prices came in flat in September, while factory gate prices saw annual declines slow for a third month, as the country's economy suffers from weak internal and external demand. The consumer price index was 0% on an annual basis in September. It was below economists' medium estimates for a 0.2% increase. In August, the CPI rose 0.2% and investors had been expecting this slight improvement to continue in September. China's producer price index, which measures the price of goods sold by manufacturers, fell 2.5% from a year earlier, weaker than economists' expectations. China reported a smaller-than-expected decline in exports in September compared to a year ago, while imports missed expectations, according to customs data released Friday. Exports fell by 6.2% last month from a year ago, less than economists' forecasts of a 7.6% drop, despite challenging global economic conditions and weak demand for manufactured goods. Imports fell by 6.2% in US dollar terms in September compared to a year ago, lower than the previous month's 7.3% fall, and slightly more than the 6% decline expected by economists. US House Republicans on Friday nominated Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio, the hard-right chairman of the Judiciary Committee, to be their next speaker, but quickly postponed a floor vote to elect him as scores of their members refused to commit to backing him. The House has now gone 10 days without a Speaker, and until a new candidate is chosen, it will be unable to pass any bills, approve White House requests for emergency aid, or pass short-term spending motions. We'll delve more into some of those stories with our guests, who are today Alex Wong, Director at Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management, and Simon Kavanagh, partner at BDA Partners. And with us later in the programme is Brock Silvers, CIO at Kion Capital. On Wall Street Friday, US stocks were sold, while havens, including bonds, the yen, the Swiss franc, gold and the dollar were bid, with crude prices surging due to the fear of escalation in the Israel conflict. The S&P 500 declined by half a percent, ending at 4,328. The Nasdaq Composite lost 1.2%, closing at 13,407. The Dow was the day's outperformer, rising by 39 points, or 0.1%, to close at 33,670. On a weekly basis, the S&P 500 and Dow notched gains. The S&P 500 climbed 0.4% to mark its second positive week, while the Dow advanced 0.8%. The Nasdaq was down 0.2% over the past five sessions. Treasury yields fell on Friday, partly reversing a surge in the previous session. The rate-sensitive two-year yield fell one basis point to 5.06%. 
The 10-year Treasury yield slipped 8 basis points to 4.62%, having jumped 14 basis points on Thursday after US inflation came in above expectations in September. The 30-year yield fell 10 basis points to 4.76%, having on Thursday climbed 16 basis points. In energy markets, West Texas Intermediate and Brent crude oil both turned in their best days since April the 3rd as concerns about a potential ground assault on Gaza added fresh tension to commodities markets. Brent climbed 5.7% to $90.89 a barrel, and for the week Brent crude was up 7.5%. The US dollar index rose 0.1% on the day and surged at half a percent over the week as traders digested the fresh CPI data. The Japanese yen rose 0.2% on the day to 149.55 against the dollar. The Chinese yuan relied on the PBOC to maintain its heavily weighted midpoint fixes after the CPI fell to 0%. The yuan was unchanged in Shanghai at 7.30.5 renminbi against the US dollar. Hong Kong shares led the losses in Asia, snapping six days of gains. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index closed 425 points lower, that's 2.3%, at 17,813. It was dragged lower by the consumer cyclical sector. For the week, it was up 1.9%. The tech index tumbled 3.5%, reducing its weekly gain to 1.7%. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite declined 0.6% to 3,088. It was down 0.7% over the week. This morning, looks like we're going to see further declines for the Hang Seng. Futures markets pointing to a loss of about 150 points or so at the open. That's 0.8%. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open around 17,670. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our guests. Every Monday morning, we find with us Alex Wong, Director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Morning, Alex. Hey, morning, Peter. And also joining us, Simon Cavender, partner at BDA Partners. Nice to see you again, Simon. Morning, Peter. Um, China is considering forming a state-backed stabilization fund to shore up confidence in its $9.5 trillion US dollar stock markets. That's according to media reports. The fund would probably invest in domestic equities through existing financial institutions and professionally managed funds, according to the reports. The government money would be matched by its partner funds and institutions. Financial regulators, including the China Securities Regulatory Commission, recently submitted a preliminary plan to the State Council, which is China's cabinet, and it calls for the fund to have access to total capital in the sum of hundreds of billions of yuan. And people familiar with the proposal said the program would need to raise at least one trillion renminbi, that's about 137 billion US dollars, to be effective. Um, Alex, is this a good idea? Is it going to work? I think uh, the market actually reacted uh, very little to this news uh, on Friday. So this shows that the confidence actually uh, is not enough. And I don't think uh, state buying would be good enough to, to reverse the fortune of the stock Chinese stock market. Because I think uh, uh, people need to see improvement in fundamentals uh, instead of unfolds. So I think uh, this probably would help a little bit to stabilize the market. But I don't think uh, it would uh, give the market a huge boost. Presumably if the market was genuinely undervalued. There's a lot of money around, a lot of local and foreign institutions. They would be buying the market themselves, wouldn't they? Yeah, 
I think uh, the point is uh, the long-term performance in Chinese equities has been so disappointing. So I think uh, the image of the market actually is uh, so bad. I think uh, many retail actually would not be interested in the market, and foreign funds actually are very concerned about um, the fundamentals, and also probably they uh, have uh, uh, some somewhere else to go as well. So I think uh, this uh, would not be helping. So it probably would help to stabilize a bit. So people won't be uh, shorting the market too aggressively, but I don't think uh, the overall market would change. Mm. Simon, what, what do you think? I have to confess, I have a natural aversion to governments intervening in stock markets, intervening in free markets, and starting to buy things when they feel, feel they're undervalued. But maybe I'm being a bit naive here. What, what do you think? No, I wholly agree with you, Peter. Um, I mean, it's a confidence boosting measure, or at least uh, initially that seems to be what it's intended for. And I agree with Alex, it hasn't really boosted confidence. Um, it's the amounts being touted are too small, given the sort of size of the 10 trillion sort of stock market in China. And I agree that fundamentally, governments shouldn't be propping up stock markets. And the problem with China's stock markets, it really needs wholesale restructuring and reorganizing, reorganizing. So it becomes more attractive for investors and is less sort of capital gains led and there needs to be more sort of yield options, greater liquidity um, and a general opening up um, of the market for fundamentals to improve and for inflows to improve. Uh, that's the thing, isn't it? There are good reasons why people are not buying. I think a lot of people feel that the market is cheap. I mean, and certainly if you look at traditional valuation methods, you know, <laughs> the market is well below historic levels. But, but there are very good reasons why that is and why people aren't buying at the moment. I th the problem with the overall Chinese economic outlook, it's still very poor. Um, and until that starts to turn around, I don't think people will be putting money in um, to the stock market looking for gains. Um, they're not looking for yield at the moment. I mean, obviously, some of the yields on the, the banks are very low and really mm -hmm. quite attractive because the banks aren't uh, going to run into any difficulties. So it's really, I think there's a wait and see attitude. Mm -hmm. um, the government is obviously putting in a lot of uh, input, sort of impetus and injection into the economy to try and revitalize it. And once that eventually gets underway, then I think we'll start to see things turning around in the stock market, but not yet. What, what I find interesting about this, Alex, is governments always want to buy stocks when they appear undervalued. You never hear them talking about selling them when they think they're overvalued. And particularly, it's, it's governments are often responsible for the bubble in the first place that, that, that you know, inflates stock markets and, and gets them overvalued in the first place and then leads to people having losses. It would be better if they just backed away and, and let the market find its own level, wouldn't it? Yeah, but uh, in Hong Kong, we've got a traffic fund to... to, 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 to <laughs> To, to dispose the government holdings in, in 20 years ago. So I think uh, they really do try to some fine exit. But I think uh, because um, the, 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 the overvalued state actually is very difficult to achieve in China right now. Yeah, so, so, so probably they need to wait for a very long, a long yeah, time. Yeah. I mean, if you've invested in the, what, the past two decades in China, you, you really wouldn't have made any money, would you? You'd be back pretty well to where you started from. Unless I think, uh, unless you are in several sectors like tax or, or several brand names, otherwise you catch actually uh, would be very messy. Mm -hmm. And and even those tax 
Macau and brand names actually got uh, hammered uh, in in these two years. So really, the returns are, are really really bad. Yeah. How, how big does this fund need to be then to have an impact? They're talking about hundreds of billions of yuan, maybe a trillion yuan. That's about 130 billion US dollars. Is it gonna? Is that is that sizable and punchy enough to to make a difference to the market? Actually, it should be sizable if you're talking about one trillion RMB. But uh, people talk about the size of Evergrande. Because mm -hmm. uh, one trillion is uh, equal to half of the problem of Evergrande only. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in China, the numbers should be very big to, to, to have big impact. So this is not really going to tempt you back into the market on, on this sort of news? Uh, no, uh, because uh, right now we just got uh, JD Hammond uh, last Friday. Is it is a it year low, isn't it? Uh, yeah, and this is very uh, dis encouraging, uh, dis discouraging because um, the... The, the size of JDX is very huge, and mm. we are talking about more than 10% uh, fall in just two days. So this is uh, quite a um, uh, uh, bad signal for the market. And that's reflecting presumably poor consumer confidence, consumer demand. Yeah, because the, the, the reason of the sell-off is the uh, deteriorating fundamentals. Mm. Uh, and, and people are worried about the upcoming results. So I think that this is a quite genuine sell-off. So I think uh, this is a very bad signal for the market. Simon, the part of the rationale behind this from, from the government seems to be that they want to make households wealthier so that they go out and spend more and therefore you, know, you make them wealthier or feel wealthier by boosting the stock market. But I would have a thought that actually if that's the aim, there's actually better ways and, and more sort of sustainable ways of making um, households wealthier than going out and propping up the stock market. I mean, cutting taxes wouldn't be a bad idea, for example. Yes, I mean, I think that would have a much better impact and more broader sort of positive confidence boosting measure. I mean, putting money into the stock market so that it doesn't fall any further, that they're not going to have, they're not going to be pushing um, share prices up. They're just mm. sort of putting a floor under it. It really isn't going to change terribly much. Um, and yes, so the question is, is this part of a multi-pronged approach or should the money be taken and um, used elsewhere? Um, but, I mean, we're seeing a whole host of measures being announced in all different areas within China at the moment. And I think, and then you couple it sort of to the kind of more commercial aspects, as Alex mentioned with sort of JD, there's really an awful lot of weakness and uh, Beijing is trying to pull out all sort of the stops to um, improve things. Um, but it's going to take quite some time. So we'll see a lot of announcements now, but in terms of those actually bearing fruit, um, it'll probably be through into 2024 before we see anything. Mm. I mean, if you want um, people to, to go out and spend and, and make them uh, consume more, you, you've got to increase household income. That's really what they've got to focus on, isn't it? Because if, if household income goes up, then spending normally goes up uh, with it. And, and household income isn't going to go up by boosting the stock market. But there are ways, presumably, in which you can boost household income. Yeah, but I... I wouldn't go down the consumption value route that we did here in Hong Kong. I mean, it's a very temporary, yes, people get cash, people spend it, but have you actually fundamentally changed anything about the sort of resilience of the economy? No. Um, so I wouldn't want to see that in China. I mean, lowering tax rates um, would be sort of changing the various tax bans. Um, yes, just generally giving everybody, um, not just the sort of stock market investors, but giving everyone um, more money in their pocket that will 
change things. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Alex? Is that is that is that the more would be the more sensible approach to go about things and, and try and boost household income? Yeah, of course that would be the most sensible thing. But I think the problem is that uh, we got a troubled uh, housing market and also we got the troubled manufacturing uh, sector as well. So um, the backbone of the Chinese economy actually is a. Uh, uh, probably will be the tech sector only, mm-hmm. but uh, the point is, uh, people are very concerned about the regulators, so that probably will make things uh, very difficult. And that's another reason, of course, why people aren't buying stocks at the moment. They're worried that the uh, the regulators could come in a few days later and wipe out the value of your your holdings. Yeah, uh, the experience over the last two three years is are too bad, and then we got trade case that means that the. Overall, macro actually is quite bad right now because uh, JD actually uh, should be okay if you think uh, the overall macro would be okay. So I think uh, people are very concerned about the uh, overall consumption in China right now. So what's happened to JD.com is really an important sort of signpost, if you like, for, for the overall market. Yeah, right. Yeah, because uh, that means uh, the the the. the the overall spending actually is a concern for the market right now. Yeah. Mm. Well, what about, I mean, they, we had the national team as well last week stepping in, didn't they? They were buying uh, the banks, the four biggest lenders, uh, Central Huajian Investments. They spent about 65 and a half million US dollars buying up the big four um, banks. What, what about that? I mean, I mean, a lot of people think the banks are undervalued, but uh, what do you make of that intervention? I think if you look at the history, uh, back in 2015, they got uh, they, they also uh, have done something like that and then banks actually stabilize and, and, and actually outperform the market a little bit over the, the course of these f- eight years but they are not making any progress uh, in the past five years so I think uh, if you look at the long term history uh, people are not um, uh, very happy with the overall experience because uh, you got you got only uh, the dividend actually mm-hmm. and it's not getting any capital gain on the share price so um and also uh, we are talking about only 500 million RMB. if mm. the problem can be solved by 500 RMB, <laughs> we won't be here actually <laughs> so so, yes. so this is the too naive to believe uh, that that kind of money could help the market I mean, Simon, that, that's the thing, isn't it? If you look at what they've actually done, although there was a lot of attention focused on this and a lot of news about it, all they've done is they've increased their shareholding in each of those banks by 0.01 of a percentage point. It's not really going to move the needle that much, is it? That's right. I mean, they're already the largest shareholder. And so you can look at this as an opportunistic purchase for um, sort of the banks while they're lowly valued. And I think that would be fair. But in terms of is it going to put a floor under the bank's share prices? Has it fundamentally changed anything? No. I mean, they're already the largest mm-hmm. shareholder. The amounts involved are fairly small. And the fact is these purchases are only going to be sort of over the next six months. So it's really a bit like a company announcing a share buyback. Um, it's, it's not going to change anything significantly. Does it provide a positive signal for investors that maybe, you know, the authorities are concerned and they're, they're prepared to do something? Do, do investors take hearts from this? I think it puts a it, it does put a floor under the share price to some extent. People will think that the banks won't decline sort of much further, but is it going to turn them around and get them to, to revert back to previous valuation levels? No, mm-hmm. um, not until something changes on the fundamentals. There's also a negative signal from this. Another way in which you could look at it is that maybe the government's getting concerned that the the woes in the property sector are spreading to the financial sector. I mean, the property sector still needs an awful lot of sorting out. I mean, this is 
they're buying shares on the secondary market. So we're not at the point yet where we're doing capital injections of new money into the banks. Mm -hmm. um, but where sort of Beijing puts its its capital and the various measures that it's implementing, how it's going to resolve um, the property side and essentially the loss of, I mean, you want the economy from a consumer point of view to come back. You've got an awful lot of, a large portion of the population with huge amounts of money that they are losing um, with sort of Evergrande and Country Garden going under. And to what extent are they going to be compensated or made whole or are they just going to lose everything, um, which will on its own have a knock-on effect. I mean, you make a good point there that um, this money, uh, the, these shares are being bought in the secondary market. So no money is actually going to the banks to shore up their balance sheet, provide them with more capital, help them with their loan losses. This is all secondary market action. Yeah. Alex, what, what do you think about it? I think, uh, yeah, they're, 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 they are not uh, boosting the capital um, of the banks. And I think uh, because from now on, we are popping up... Uh, um, um, approaching the the, the, the the end game of our Evergrande um, and then probably that pop would um, dampen the sentiment towards banks uh, and, and the financial sectors uh, in the coming months, I think. Does it shore up confidence at all? I mean, some people have been saying, yes, this is a good signal. It helps shore up confidence in the markets. Do, do you feel that way? Uh, we got some sort of grace because of this, but uh, this is very short-lived. And I don't think uh, the confidence will be back because uh, banks are very difficult to understand. Uh, you got the numbers, but you don't never understand the, the real fundamentals behind the numbers. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, they would still be lowly valued because uh, the, the situation in the uh, industrial and the property sector in China actually is uh, quite worrisome. Oh, okay. Well, we've had some economic data out on Friday. Uh, let's start with the inflation data. China's consumer prices came in flat in September. Factory gate prices saw annual declines, but they did slow for the third month in a row. The consumer price index, it was 0% on an annual basis in September. Data from the National Bureau of Statistics showed it was below economists' median estimates for a 0.2% increase. In April, uh, sorry, in August, the CPI rose 0.2%, and investors had been expecting this slight improvement to continue in September. China's produced Producer price index, which measures the price of goods sold by manufacturers, fell 2.5% from a year earlier, weaker than economists' expectations for a 2.4% decline. I mean, Simon, what do you make of this? Back to zero now on the CPI. It, it's flirting with deflation again to Chinese economy. Yeah, it is. It, it's worrying, and this will be one of the biggest sort of causes of concern. Um, and it's how do they how do they fix it? Um, will they um, cut interest rates? Um, that's very hard to do. Are they going to let the RMB decline? They certainly don't seem um, inclined to do that. So are they going to try and spend their way out of it? Um, increase money supply, the very large infrastructure fund that they talked about, but it's, it's vague in terms of what that would actually be spent on. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, the, the sort of China is facing the opposite of really what uh, Europe and the US are, are tackling. Um, it's got relatively or comparatively higher unemployment and um, sort of zero inflation. Um, so there's a lot to fix there. And then we are going to see the PBOC later this week decide on the one-year medium-term lending facility decision. Presumably, they can't cut because at the same time, they're trying to stop the yuan from, uh, from depreciating and they're uh, facing quite a big battle to do that at the moment. Yes, um, that's the conundrum they have, uh, which is why I think they'll, it'll be sort of 
sort of injecting more money into the economy um, mm. is how they're going to try and solve that. Um, and we, but we have the GDP data coming out on Wednesday as well, I think. Um, it'll be interesting to see, because, I mean, fundamentally, you look at the GDP numbers and the Chinese economy is not doing too badly. I mean, even if it comes in below its 5% um, target, you're still north of 4%, which isn't too shabby. Um, so, but it's sort of still um, quite a lot of things to sort out. No, it's strange, isn't it? You're seeing sort of GDP sort of quite strong, as Simon says, you know, above 4% is pretty good. But then when you look at the CPI data, I mean, zero suggests uh, that the economy is really struggling with demand, both sort of domestic and foreign. But I think uh, if you look at uh, uh, things from the real life uh, perspective, I think many, uh, the retail market in China actually is super competitive. And I think uh, many sectors are getting consolidated uh, very fastly because um, many franchises actually want to um, get listed or get funded by investors. So they are undercutting the uh, competitors. They mm-hmm. so lucky in actually selling coffees at half of the price of Starbucks. So um, many, 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 many sectors actually are seeing this kind of consolidation by uh, some uh, medium size to bigger payers. So, so they, are, they are putting lower prices to try to eat out the competition. So I think this is another thing which makes the Chinese um, economy very deflationary right now. And also the rise of e-commerce actually is deflationary. So um, th- there is some natural deflation force in China right now. But why do we see it in China and not elsewhere? You would think other economies as well would have the same uh, sort of price-cutting war going on in, in various sectors and, you know, they're, they're super competitive, but they're not seeing deflation in the way that China is. I think, uh, first of all, Chinese are not super good in branding. I think uh, they, they, they tend to use price as the, the, the major uh, primary tool in competition. Mm. I think that is uh, one thing which uh, Chinese are quite weak in, I think. Because if you look at the price of, uh, say, uh, Xiaomi or, or other other brands, actually, they are selling at very low price to, to try to get market share. They are thinking about um, the subsidies from the equi- uh, capital market uh, rather than from the consumer uh, pocket. So I think uh, this is uh, the Chinese way. Uh, are they getting subsidies from the government as well? Is that also another reason that why yeah. you're seeing prices fall? I don't think so. I think uh, they, they, they actually are being funded by, <laughs> by investors. So uh, they, they are trying to sell the, um, the future scenario to investors. And, and they need to deliver the growth first and then the bottom line later. Well, what do you think, Simon? Is cut price you know, competition, is that the reason why we're seeing such low inflation rates? It'll definitely be a factor, certainly on the consumer side in China. It is hyper-competitive, and you'll go through a period, I think, in some of the more dynamic sectors where things will consolidate, the smaller players will get um, squeezed out. We're hearing a lot about that happening within sort of the electric vehicle market, um, where some very well-funded players are just sort of losing out by economies of scale, Mm -hmm. um, and they will they will go under and um, the market will consolidate as it always does around a handful of um, larger players and then pricing will stabilize. Mm. The problem is PPI is also in deflation as well. It has, I mean, it has been for a while. Maybe that deflation is slowing a little bit, but nevertheless, 3%, um, sorry, 2.5% compared to 3% in, in August, that suggests that there are more sort of fundamental problems in the economy, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, what I'm hearing is consumption down at sort of 
the lower price point end of the market. So in terms of just going out cinemas, restaurants, um, sort of relatively low cost travel, um, that is quite robust. Because I mean, the China, uh, population has an awful lot um, in savings that it just isn't deploying. Mm. Where the big sort of expenditure is suffering is obviously on the property end of the market and on big ticket items like cars. Um, but the economy will continue to tick along um, very well. I mean, Japan did for decades. Um, you turn up in Japan and it was very vibrant and everything was working very well, and yet you look at the economic data and um, you feel sort of it was a, a kind of basket case. But um, so, yes, I mean, China, it'll sort of, it'll work its way through it. Um, but the problems are very much at the kind of macro level rather than right on the ground. Alex, what do you make of the trade data? That was better than expected, wasn't it? It's a smaller than expected decline in exports in September, although they still fell the headline figure, 6.2% they fell uh, last month. Uh, slightly less than what economists were expecting. Also, it, it was a slowdown from August decline of 8.8%. But then if you look at the regions where China was exporting to, uh, to the US exports down 9.3% to the ASEAN, down 15.8%, almost 12% down to the EU, over 6% down to Japan, 7% down to South Korea. The only area where exports seemed to grow was to Russia, where they were up by 21%. But when you, when you dig into the numbers, um, it, it, it doesn't seem to be a good sign for sort of the regional economy. Yeah, of course. I think the, the, the real concern is ASEAN, because uh, in the past, uh, people probably think uh, the many Chinese popular Many Chinese manufacturers have probably export the semi-manufactured goods over there to finish the overall process and then to reroute to other countries. So I think that is a concern uh, for us. And then Russia, of course, I think is really easy to explain right now. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyway, I think uh, the overall number actually is uh, is okay, but not too encouraging. Yeah. And what about imports being down 6.2% compared to a year ago? That is, of course, a concern because it shows the demand from China actually is bad. I think it also coincides with the weakness in BPI because I think uh, the manufacturing sector actually are probably are importing less um, raw materials. Mm. Simon, what, what do you read from this, uh, from this trade data? I mean, the headline figure improving, but nevertheless, regional trade not looking very good. Yeah, I was, I, to be honest, I was slightly confused by the data in that looking at it all on an individual export basis, everyone seemed to be down more than the whole. So I was mm -hmm. kind of trying to work out who was pulling it back up. Um, I think, I mean, the U.S. is sort of easy to explain um, sort of with their de-risking. Europe is obviously quite weak itself. Um, but as Alex says, ASEAN was, was a bit of a concern. And again, what you've got is China's shift from a sort of export-led growth economy, which has been its backbone for so long, to a sort of domestic consumer-led economy is being forced upon it far too quickly for the sort of the economy actually to be able to adapt. Um, so it's going to be painful. And obviously the way to, to, to push up exports would be to um, depreciate to some extent, and yes, it's come down about 5% this year, but um, really, if we didn't have a managed exchange rate to such an extent, um, it would have fallen a lot further, and that would actually um, resolve some of the export uh, weakness. 
Okay, let's move on to the markets. I mean, Alex, let's do an update on the the Alex index. It's at 98.93 as of the close um, on Friday. Just to remind people, this was your index that uh, you created about a month ago of three stocks, which are really the big blue chip stocks that you think are going to outperform here in Hong Kong. It's basically one share of HSBC, one share of China Mobile, five shares of CNOOC. Um, on a weekly basis, it, well, it did really well on Friday, although it was down 0.4%. The Hang Seng was down 2.3%. So certainly outperforming on the downside. Since inception, um, your index, the Alex index, is off 1.1%. The Hang Seng off 2.0%. So it seems to be working, doesn't it? Certainly in negative markets anyway, that these uh, quality blue chips are the areas to focus on. Yeah, I think hopefully we will still outperform. I think, first of all, the market is still weak. And then we, we got some uh, uh, encouraging results from JP Morgan. And hopefully HSBC uh, would also be supported as well. And then oil, I think, uh, probably will still be okay because uh, people probably may, may need some oil stocks to anchor the portfolio right now because of the uh, Middle East situation. And so uh, probably CNOC will still be okay. Uh, I think uh, the only wicked performer in, in, the, in the index is China Mobile right now. But I uh, but this is very defensive. And the only weakness, I think, is uh, maybe depreciation. So I think uh, overall it should be still be okay. And I think the Hong Kong market actually probably may edge lower uh, slowly because after JD, I think people perform confidence actually is quite weak. And mm-hmm. then last week we got a very big soft squeeze. And then after that, we probably will be back to those days that we are edging lower with uh, low turnover. So probably this index, I think, will still outperform the market. It does seem that the rallies, I mean, the market did rally um, last week overall, the Hang Seng Index, but it just seems the rallies seem to be very short-lived. They, they run yeah. out of steam very quickly, run into selling very quickly. Because you know that the only buyers willing to chase the market is those are short sellers. They are covering their short positions on, 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 on the strength. So uh, generally buyers, long-term buyers actually are not entering into the market. Uh, actually, you can look at the Asia market as a uh, as a hint because um, uh, Asia market does not have that kind of source squeeze. So after the news of those uh, um, state bank state 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 owned money buying uh, banks, actually Asia market uh, failed to respond much. Uh, and Hong Kong actually got a bigger re- uh, reaction. So mm-hmm. that means that the, the, the rises are only driven by source squeeze. I think we are very used to this kind of source squeeze uh, over the last uh, f- uh, six months. We have been seeing this kind of experience uh, several times, and they did not last too much uh, t- uh, time. So um, every time, actually, the, the length of the uh, string uh, getting shorter. So I think uh, probably this will be the trend in Hong Kong. Okay. Simon, what are your thoughts? The big theme at the moment seems to be a flight to haven assets, doesn't it? With all the geopolitical tensions uh, going on, rising interest rates, the Fed basically reminding everyone these rates are going to stay higher for longer. So we've seen um, treasury bonds outperform, gold, um, the US dollar, um, oil obviously a big bounce, but risk assets being sold. Yes, I think. And I mean, Jamie Dimon, uh, JP Morgan came out end of last week saying he felt that the global economy was in a worse state or a riskier state than it has been for decades. And I think that that's right. I mean, we've got now two wars essentially going on. Um, We've got some real big geopolitical problems. um, That need to be sorted out. And the economies, I mean, Wall Street Journal had a recent survey and fine economists are now slightly 
on the side of U.S. not going into recession, but I mean it's still effectively 50-50. There's, yeah, a lot of weakness and a lot of instability, and I think as a result we'll have a lot of volatility through to the end of the year. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts. Thanks for for coming in this morning. You heard there Simon Cavender, who is partner at BDA Partners, and Alex Wong, director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management. I'm joined now by Brock Silvers, who is Chief Investment Officer at Kion Capital. Very good morning to you, Brock. Good morning. Good to be here. And nice to speak with you too. Let's start with this news about the uh, the China Stabilization Fund to try and prop up uh, the stock market. Uh, it looks like they want to raise on maybe as much as a trillion yuan, which is about $140 billion, um, to buy stocks with their partners, which are sort of traditional investment funds. Um, do you think this is going to work? I mean, the whole idea is that it's supposed to boost consumer confidence and get people to go out and spend more. But do you think this is the right way of doing it? Well, look, there has been an initially positive reaction, I think. Um, but in my view, a stabilization fund is, is just a terrible idea. Um, the goal is to reassure investors, but it actually does the opposite. Now, they want a trillion dollars, a trillion run and B, but for what? To manipulate the market. It creates a market that trades securities at government-assigned values and, and leaves investors at the tender mercy of that assignment. So they, according to me, we should be focusing on dealing with the underlying growth and investability issues. But instead, we're trying to provide vague assurances of a, a undefined reasonable profit. Um, so I don't think it's positive. Now, last week, we also saw moves to restrict short selling. Um, and I'd say then that the last few days have, have not done China any favors in terms of expressing a, a commitment to investable markets. And presumably, I mean, one of the reasons why people have been pulling out of the markets is they feel there's too much government interference and too much policy uncertainty, which can sort of suddenly wipe out the value of your shareholdings in certain sectors. This doesn't really help that. Uh, that's right. And look, maybe for people who are more um, who are more flow oriented, it might create some opportunities. But for people who are more value oriented, how, how do you calculate the odds of your company that you're looking at being included in a favorite sector and receiving stabilization support? Mm. And how do you calculate the odds of that suddenly ending? It, it, it's impossible. And presumably, if the market was genuinely undervalued, um, local and foreign institutions would be buying the market. So you have to presume that there are some very good reasons as to why they are out of the market at the moment that a stabilization fund isn't going to address. It, it's a, a trillion renminbi fund to make sure that the market does not hit what the market views as fair value. <laughs> well, what I always find strange about these things and maybe a little bit hypocritical is that governments, when they do intervene, they always want to buy because they think things are over undervalued. They never want to sell. They never admit when things are overvalued um, and want to sell or, or they're responsible for creating the bubble in the first place. That's right. And if the support comes to help an investor today at some tomorrow, that support has to end. It's mm. not permanent. Mm. And when it does, then that will be a bloody day for shareholders. 
And presumably, if you want to boost um, sort of uh, people's income and, and, you know, to get them to go and consume more, there are better ways of doing that, uh, of, of boosting people's um, wealth, boosting people's income uh, than investing in the stock market. Absolutely correct. Look, at, at a retail level, I don't think you'll see a resurgence of interest a, a, until some of these uh, real estate and debt issues are cleared away. And that may not be easy. But on an institutional level, there are plenty of ways to increase interest in Chinese securities um, without sort of manipulating the market, just by addressing some of these data and due diligence concerns alone would I think go farther than a stabilization fund would. And sort of linked to this, we saw last week China's Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, sometimes called the National Team, buying the four biggest banks for the first time since 2015. What do you make of that? Well, look, there, I, I've seen a lot of analysis about how the National Team now sees value in banks. Well, that is just not the case. The National Team is applying government capital in pursuit of government aims. It's not trying to maximize the return on its investment capital. Um, authorities saw weakness in banks as a systemic threat, which may well be true, and so they stepped in. Um, but again, what happens when this artificial price support is removed? They didn't come out with a plan that said, here's how we're going to strengthen the banking system um, while we protect those stocks. It was just outright manipulation. We're going to we're going to artificially buy and create an artificial price floor. Um, so again, it, it's not positive from a market perspective. Now, on a larger level, there's a there's a bigger issue with Chinese bank shares. Um, and I think the issue is, is simple. Ultimately, all Chinese bank capital is government capital. And China right now is facing significant solvency issues on a number of fronts. For example, how's real estate going to be resolved? China can't just allow a quarter or a third of GDP to evaporate. That won't happen. So there will at some point be a bailout. Well, who will pay for that bailout? If banks are told to pay, they will. Mm -hmm. And let's just say those plans won't be put to a shareholder vote. Mm -hmm. So for me, the banks are uh, even uh, it's an even worse situation than the concept of a stabilization fund in general. So is this a sign then that the government, that Beijing is concerned that the problems in the property sector are spreading to the financial system overall? I think there's no question that they are trying to get ahead of the problem um, and shore up the banks, which is a weak link in the overall system. Mm. Um, so I don't think that's, that's a question whatsoever. But it, 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 this market manipulation, I mean, despite all the headlines and all the attention it's brought, it, it's pretty puny market manipulation, isn't it? It's only $65 million. It's ads, they, they've basically bought 0.01% uh, increased stake in each of those four banks. It's hardly um, earth shattering. The, the downside is it's a bad idea. The upside is it's a very small bad idea. <laughs> I suppose that's a, that's a good way of looking at it. Let me ask you also about the economy, because we had quite a lot of data out um, on Friday in terms of inflation data, trade data, and then also uh, credit data um, after the close. First of all, on the, on the inflation side, I mean, the standout was the consumer price index back at 0% again. Looks like China's flirting with deflation again. Yeah, look, inflation was, was flat. CPI was still down, I think, 2.5%. Uh, 
trade is trending lower, new loan data is below expectation. Now, the economy is not imploding, right? China is not in its death throes by any means, but the economy is somewhere between deflationary and merely really stagnant. Mm. So not a good place to be. Um, I think China would lower rates, but you just can't exacerbate U.S. rate divergence as the Fed is preparing to hike again, maybe more than we'd all like. Um, so what is Beijing left with? You know, they're thinking about a trillion yuan debt finance, new infrastructure spending bill, um, which seems unbelievable to me. It's just kind of kicking the can. It reflects a real um, dearth of ideas, I think. Um the reality for me is that China's economy has hit a limit, and now we're looking at a choice between some increased systemic change or lower growth. Um, and that may be a politically difficult realization, but I, I think it's probably an inevitable one. I mean, for all of this, we're, we're going to get the GDP, the third quarter GDP figures later this week. They're going to come in certainly above 4%, aren't they? Which is not bad growth uh, at all for, uh, for, for any economy um, in the world. So despite, you know, the trade data and the inflation data and the credit data, the, the economy is chugging along. It, it, it's, it's very easy to look at all the different bits of negative data and come up with an overly negative um, evaluation of the economy as i said the economy is not imploding mm. but it's also not doing well and it's not producing the growth that would be needed in order to more easily resolve some of the problems the economy faces mm. um, and i don't think we're going to return to anywhere close to the to the growth that we were experiencing unless and until there's real systemic change, and that doesn't seem to be in the political cards, at least in the near term. And presumably one of the problems is also the economy is very unbalanced as well, um, and it's still relying very heavily on infrastructure spending, which the, the government said last week they, they want to increase. They want to you know, increase uh, the, the debt levels, uh, the fiscal caps, uh, to basically uh, provide more, a bigger boost to infrastructure. Yeah, and look, I, I think it would be hard to find a lot of investors right now who are saying that's a great idea. It will generate lots of growth. Mm -hmm. I, the, the thing that stood out to me in that, uh, in some of the data, the trade data, exports to the ASEAN countries down sixteen percent. I mean, this is um, not a good sign for for China, is it? And maybe not a good sign for the rest of the region. Um, either because that has really been a focus uh, for China in terms of developing trade. That, that, that's right. And that's, you know, in, in front of a backdrop that has kind of a very tenuous U.S.-Sino relationship and the potential that oil prices could spike um, at any moment, unfortunately. Mm. Now, what's the latest in the property sector with uh, Evergrande? Uh, first of all, they're, they're facing this court hearing, aren't they, um, on the 30th of October in Hong Kong. We also have Country Garden um, on the verge of default. It's failed to make an international debt payment in Hong Kong dollars. It warned a week ago that it was unlikely to pay off all its international debt obligations. Where are we on, on, on the property crisis? You know, the private developer sector is, is just insolvent. They have now, um, you know, um, income statements that can't support their balance sheets. And that's unlikely to change given the debt constraints that Beijing is, is facing. So 
some sort of a restructuring is inevitable for the real estate sector, but not only would that be um, terribly expensive and politically difficult, but it also may not happen until after dollar bond investors are out of the way. Mm. If I were in charge, I may wait until after I can squeeze some concessions from dollar bond investors, creditors, um, before I dealt with that. Now, in the meantime, dollar bond defaults are no longer novel, right? It's almost the expected result. There's very little incentive at this point to make big dollar bond payments to take care of those obligations. Um, I think it's much more rational to accept that um, dollar bond default is no longer going to get anyone in trouble. And and let's just wait to see uh, how the economic planners decide to deal with this. Now, that being said, October 30th is the next big tripwire. That's when we'll know if there's an Evergrande deal or not. I say all sides need a deal. Um, Regulators, the company, creditors, but Beijing would have to remove the blocks on new issuance if they want to get a deal. it probably means UN creditors have to be protected, and that's likely what's being debated this week, I would think. An extension is possible, but if that October 30th hearing um, doesn't go well and wind up, it looks like it's going to be initiated, I think it could become a trend in the developer sector. But ultimately, I'm still optimistic. I think they may pull a rabbit out of a hat and announce um, a deal or an extension that leads to a deal by October 30th. But but maybe I'm just an unreasonable optimist. But presumably it is in Beijing's interests not to have um, Evergrande uh, default, allow it to try and restructure the debts. Uh, it, will, it will be odd, wouldn't it, if you know, they're, they're trying to restructure, but they're barred from Beijing from, uh, from raising new debts. It would go against Beijing's interests as well, wouldn't it? I think Beijing should be highly incentivized to not see this company wound up. You know, there are um, there's a tremendous list of um, of trade payables that need to be resolved and a long list of homes that need to be delivered. And none of that happens um, unless the company is kept alive and functioning. Beijing does not want to see this thing wound up. Creditors don't want to uh, even though a deal will not be rich, it'll still probably be better for creditors than a wind up would be. And, of course, the company wants to survive. Everyone should be pulling for a deal, which is why I suspect they may just be waiting to the last moment uh, before we before we hear that something has been agreed. That's something I don't think will please anyone, but it may still be better than the alternative. Mm. Presumably, the, the, the problem is if one part of the group collapses, it could get out of control very quickly, couldn't it, and ricochet throughout the whole group and then ultimately throughout the whole sector as well. Yes. And look, it, you know, in China, unequal treatment often becomes a, a, a social issue, mm. right? Regulators don't want to see significant unequal treatment in, in how domestic concerns are managed. And if you start to see isolated companies, especially of this size, um, wind up, I think that's inevitable. So it just sort of creates a bit more social wobble that I'm sure the government wouldn't want. Brock, it's always fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. That's Brock Silvers, who's Chief Investment Officer at Kion Capital. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. 
Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves on my daily newsletter. Take a look at Peter Lewis, moneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me then will be Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Woods. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.